Hello, thank you for tuning in. You are listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. For network or show information, visit byteradio.me or call 843-808-0777. And now, the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Good day, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. And today, my very special guest is Judith Matloff. We'll be talking about her new book, How to Drag a Body, and Other Safety Tips You Hope to Never Need, <laughs> Survival Tricks for Hacking Hurricanes and Hazards Life May Throw at You. Everyone from Louis Pasteur to the Girl Scouts has championed the motto, Be Prepared. But what does that mean in today's constantly changing world? In this age of anxiety, when reports of mass shootings, political unrest, threat of nuclear war, devastating natural disasters, digital attacks, and of course pandemics dominate the news, we are transforming our lives and we uh, yearn for some control. We want to make sensible decisions to help keep us on track when everything seems to be going off the rails. We want to be ready to the best of our abilities for the worst that can happen. As a seasoned war correspondent with more than 30 years of experience working in crisis zones and pioneering safety consultant, Judith Matloff knows about personal security and risk management and how to drag a body and other safety tips you hope to never need, she shares her tried-and-true methods to help you confidently handle whatever challenges come your way. For more information, you can visit Judith's website, which is judithmatloff.com, and that's Judith and M-A-T-L-O-F-F.com. With that, I'd like to welcome Judith to the show. Good day, Judith. Good morning. I am really, thank you. I'm really looking forward to talking with you. Um, I enjoyed reading your book. You have just the right amount of humor, you know, in dealing with these situations. And I think, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about that later. But one of the things I I read in the book um, is, first of all, that um, when it came to um, uh, your experiences out in the field that um, there was a, a point in time when you, you know, thought some, some simple homework and forethought could have, um, things could have operated a little bit better. Um, now, one of the things you indicate is in, you've basically over the a few decades um, and on five continents, you've been you reported on seven civil wars, one genocide, several sep- separatist rebellions, and 48 assorted rogue militias, gangs, and vigilantes, and, and drug cartels, and civil unrest and um, mob situations. You've said that you've probably covered in the hundreds. So, one of those would do me in, <laughs> you know, right off the bat. You know, <laughs> and, uh, so I can't imagine having done it. So, can you tell me, we share with the listeners just a, um, a little bit um, about that experience? I mean, you know. Just, I mean, I, I mentioned a whole bunch of things, but can you maybe give us a, an overview of what that period was like? Yeah, I mean, basically, I graduated from from college and then immediately went abroad 
and I moved to Latin America, and this was during the 80s, I'm ancient, and uh, these Central American <laughs> rebellions were happening at that time, so that kind of happened. And then I moved to Europe for a short period of time, and I covered the collapse of the stock market and the oil industry. So you're probably already sensing a bit of a pattern here, like everywhere that Matloff goes, there's you know, a problem. It's not my fault, <laughs> but it just seems to happen. So then I thought, okay, enough of this. Um, Let's go to Africa, and this was in the 90s, so things were pretty insane there. There were quite a few civil wars, the Rwanda genocide. And then, you know, after doing that for about six years, I thought, you know what? I really want a quieter life. So I spoke to my, bureau, to my foreign editor, and I said, um, can I have a job where I just basically sit at a desk and interview diplomats? And he said, absolutely, why don't you go to Moscow? Moscow was having a financial boom at the time. Democracy was there. As soon as I got there, sure enough, the, uh, the financial crisis happened. The banks collapsed. The Chechen civil war started again. And then I thought, okay, this really is enough. So I came back home. Um, at that point, I was married, and we were starting up a family. So I came back to New York, where I was from. 9-11 happened. And then I got a job at Columbia University, and they said, we'd really like you to teach the slot where we always have one professor who teaches about covering conflicts and crises. So um, mm. I said, yeah, whatever. But the problem then is, you know, you kind of have a brand. So then I've spent, I've spent the last 20 years going to crisis zones teaching people. So, um, yeah, there I am. So if you ever are in a car with me, you want to move and go into another car. Something might happen. <laughs> <laughs> but. I can't imagine of anyone being more prepared if I was going to be with someone. So, well, um, well, that's the thing. That that's kind of the genesis of the book, which was when I first started doing this a million years ago. We in the media industry did not have safety protocols. People didn't wear bulletproof vests. You just got on an airplane. Your boss would call you at like three in the morning and say, "Oh, there's a coup going on. Just get on a plane." You'd get there. You in my case, I knew nothing about conflict. I didn't even know, like, which, you know, how you're supposed to duck when you're under fire. I mean, I was that ill-prepared. And, um, you know, I began to think while doing this over the decades that, you know, this is really is not a very smart way to, to do my job. So I started coming up with safety protocols. And then when I moved to New York and started teaching at Columbia University 20 years ago, I started training people actively. And then... You know, so I wasn't prepared at the beginning, but because of these dreadful situations I kept finding myself in, I thought, you know, <laughs> I really have to come up with planning. And it really served me well with the current pandemic because I actually was fairly prepared for it. So, you know, my call out to everybody is be prepared. <laughs> yeah. Um, so now when, when it came time to um, put this book together – one of the, the most important um, aspects of writing the book is selecting the title. <laughs> and I just yes. kind of want to get this out there to begin with, you know, the title of your book, How to Drag a Body. So is there a proper way to drag a body? There is. And first, I just want to make clear to the listeners that um, we're not referring to dra dragging someone who's expired. We're talking about a live person. And um, the most critical thing is to secure the head and the neck and make sure the person is stable so that you don't end up 
causing more harm if they have broken bones or internal um, injuries. So what you want to do is keep them face up, secure them. um, You either lay them flat, but, you know, you keep the the head, you could cradle the head, or you put your arms under the, you you put your arms under the armpit and so that the person's neck and, um, and head are very, very secure. And then you drag them. But if the person is vomiting, you, you don't want to do that. You want to roll them over on their side so that they don't choke. Wow. I feel more parroted. <laughs> so, well, you know, um, that's one of those things that, like the title, you hope to never have to use. <laughs> but, um, exactly. you know, that could happen. That could very much couldn't very happen. Well, it could. Um, and, you know, we, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it's, we, we make it a, a, a major part of our training because, Let's say you're just walking down the street and there's a car accident. It's going to take a while for the emergency responders to arrive, but you could save that person's life and stabilize them. You know, let's say the car is burning or they're, you know, whatever, they're hanging out of the car at a very precarious angle. You want to get them out of there and into a safe place, not where there's incoming traffic, and then wait with them until the emergency responders arrive. Another type of circumstance where that could happen would be an earthquake where, you know, maybe Mm -hmm. some rubble fell on somebody and their legs are shattered. Or let's say somebody has an asthma attack in the middle of a hurricane. I mean, or even, and this is really the, the one where it's so critical where you really can save a life. Let's say there's a shooting, you know, it could be at a kid's school or you, you could be at a concert like, or you could be at, you know, the Boston Marathon, like what happened several years ago. Mm-hmm. What happened was bystanders that knew how to drag bodies as well as apply pressure to staunch bleeding saved so many lives until the medics could arrive. So it's, it's really, you just never know, and it's always good to be prepared. I agree, yeah. As a matter of fact, you have um, one of the chapters in your book is um... – just plug it, emergency first aid, and um, you know, and and in in that one, you know, you really talk about um, the role, the important role that a bystander can play as a first responder, and and in that one, um, just to give the listeners an example, we mind sharing the story about uh, Tina, um, your friend Tina, and you know, which was a story in that first aid um, section and uh, the Heimlich. Yeah, absolutely. This is a friend of mine who has been in the most incredible war situations. She was taken hostage in Somalia. She was riding in a Jeep in Kashmir, and it overturned because the brakes went out and her leg was shattered. This woman has survived. She's been in crossfire so many times she probably couldn't even count it. She, she now works at Time Magazine. So Tina was just, you know, like a lot of correspondents, um, she knows how to administer first aid. So she was just walking down the street in New York City on 34th Street, right outside Macy's department store, and a woman was choking. And there was a big crowd surrounding the woman. Everybody was panicked. Everybody was like, somebody do something, somebody do something. She's choking, she's choking. They called 911 to get, you know, the police or the fire, you know, the, the medics in. They hadn't arrived yet. And Tina said, everybody move aside. First of all, stop shouting, calm down. It's all going to be okay. She told the woman, calm down. I'm here to save you. She gave her the Heimlich maneuver, a big chunk of hot dog, you know, flew out (laughs) of the woman's mouth. And um, the woman was fine. And it's just one more example of a four-hour medical first aid training can save somebody's life. 
Yeah, very much. And and by the way, your illustrations in the book, you have illustrations at the beginning of each chapter. <laughs> I had one of, of her <laughs> spitting out the, the hot dog was a really good one. So I just, you know, it's kind of funny. You As you turn the page, you to see this illustration and the first thing, reaction is laugh, you know, and then he kind of sets the tone uh, for, for the story. So um, anyway, I enjoyed that yeah. one. Uh, well, yeah. you know, now, it, it, with the mm-hmm. cartoonist, I've never actually met mm-hmm. her. I admired her work in the New Yorker magazine. And what I did is I just loved her work. I'd been, read, you know, seeing her work for ages mm-hmm. in the magazine. I simply emailed her and I said, I love your work. Here's a copy of the book. You know, I'd love a week of work together. And she got back to me in like two seconds and said, yeah, we're on. We actually have not met, but we would oh, – um, wow. But we were like so on the same wavelength. She's just she's just hysterically funny, and I would I would I would write to her and I'd say something like, um, I'd really like a picture of a bunker, you know, like a shelter in somebody's house. Let's say there's a you know tornado shelter. Could you put a llama mm-hmm. in there? And then you know <laughs> she'd put a llama in there. But then she took it like two steps further. She put a parakeet. She put a, a bunny, she put a dog, she put a cat, she put like some, a tur- I think there's a tortoise in there. And it, it was, it's just so much fun working with a visual artist when you're a word-oriented person. It's, it's just so thrilling to see somebody execute your vision in a different format. Yeah, that's fun. Yes, she, she did a wonderful job, wonderful job at that. Um, so now we're going to talk a little bit about some of the, items in the book, some of the topics. Um, but before we do, um, what would you say to the listeners who feel that, you know, I'm never going to confront, <laughs> I'm not like Judith in any way, you know, that I'm not going to be seen it. Um, what is the, why would they want to read a book of where they, you know, aren't going to necessarily run in those kind of situations? Well, um, my argument would be you might run into them. I have a whole section on natural disasters. So even if you don't live in a tornado area, a traditional tornado area, they can occur. For instance, there was one in New York City a couple of years back, and it blew off a bunch of roofs from houses and damaged cars. And, you know, with, with climate change or, you know, whatnot, we're seeing far more severe hurricanes than before, where, you know, the big one is expected at some point in California. Uh, the wildfires have been getting out of control the last couple of years. So there are so many circumstances where we don't anticipate that something could happen. Let's say, you know, I have a whole section on sexual assault and sexual harassment. One-fourth of all women who go to college at one point might, are, are sexually assaulted, either by somebody you know or somebody they don't. That's a striking figure. So that's obviously a skill you hope it never happens to you, but you want to know how to deal with that situation or the risk of it to prevent it from happening. I have a whole section about hacking of banking, bank accounts and uh, mm-hmm. uh, mobile communications, as we saw with the Target and the Equifax breaches. Um, hacking happens all the time and people's accounts are drained. So, you know, there's so many circumstances we, we don't anticipate it, but if we're ready, um, we can deal with it when it happens. And look at, look at COVID-19. I mean, who ever thought there would be a global pandemic right. on this scale? And yet there are, there are ways to prepare for something like that. 
Yeah, there there was obviously some people thought so, and and some people did some preparation, and and uh, you know, and also one of the things in addition to those specific um, instances possibly happening to you, I think you know because as I was going through and reading the book, um, there's a you kind of take people through a a questioning. Um, process, you know, for, you know, what questions to ask, you know, what things to consider. And to me, it seemed, you know, as I was reading on that my mind was working in a processing, you know, processing what, what, what things to look for, you know, I mean, it may not be a specific situation. So I think um, also to one of the benefits, in, in addition to being prepared for specific situations, I think you also, people, the reader will get, um, um, a way to prepare themselves, you know, a process to to go through and, and work through those. Yeah, I mean, in the crisis field, we call it risk assessment or threat sectors. So, you know, even something as simple as walking the dog. You know, you're walking, you're, you know, what would be a risk of something that might happen? You might step in another dog's poop. Uh, somebody else's dog might <laughs> bite your dog. Um, the dog might get, you know, might run away. So, you know, even when you're doing something simple like walking the dog, you're actually going through this process. You're thinking about what could go wrong, and, you know, you bring plastic mm-hmm. bags to pick up the poop if you live in a city like mine. You have the dog on a well-secured right. leash. You see some, you know, growling, nasty-looking um, canine across the street. You cross the street, you know, but, and, and so just, or even when you go hiking. You know, when you go hiking, is the area prone to floods? Is it prone to rattlesnakes? Um, are you going to be out for a long time? Should you have extra food and water with you? So, you know, a lot of us do this without even, um, we, you know, on a, on a very mundane, prosaic level. What, what, I'm, right. what I'm suggesting in the book is that we prepare for the things that really are super dangerous to us. Just take it one step further. And, it, you know, the thing yeah. is, you know, I've been doing this for years, so I can, I can testify this to this. If you're pre- if you think about the worst thing that could happen to you and you work backwards and you come up with a plan to mitigate that risk or mitigate um, or, or think about how you would cope with it if it does occur, you actually feel calmer because you've already thought it through and you've come up with a plan. And that's so different from just an unspecified anxiety about something. So let me give you an example. When COVID hit, the thing that made me most anxious was that my husband and I would end up in hospital and our 19-year-old son would not be able to visit us and would be left on his own. So that being my biggest anxiety, uh, what, we, mm-hmm. you know, what we did is we updated our wills, we put all our financial documents and all our medical documents together in one file so our son would know where to go for information. We set up telecommuting with our doctor so that the, our son could be in touch virtually. Um, we got enough spare cash in the house so that, God forbid, if something happened, the kid would have a month's supply of money that he could pay bills or do whatever. So basically what we did is we came up with a plan, um, and, I, you know, the other adults in the family who he should contact, he, you know, we went through who mm-hmm. he should contact. And it just made me feel less anxious. It's like I don't want to go to hospital. I don't want to get covid but if I do, and here in New York, you couldn't, your family can't visit, couldn't visit you during the height of the pandemic. Right. So, you know, mm-hmm. if that horrible consequence happened, 
we, we knew at least the kid would be taken care of and that he would know what to do. And it gave me so much peace of mind. Yeah, that would be, um, I mean, it sounds like a, a logical way to, to, um, to be prepared um, for that. Now, um, one of recognizing that, and, and all of that is absolutely, I mean, that it would make things flow very smoothly. Is there a, such a thing as over-preparing? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I'm not suggesting we all go out and buy a plot of land with running water on it and get five years supply of grains and, um, you know, you know, start fishing for our meals. And I mean, if you'd like to do that, that's a phenomenal thing to have, like, you know, a camp. But no, I'm not suggesting that we do that at all. Just do it within reason. Uh, what I'm suggesting is just think about what makes you anxious. And then come up with a plan to deal with it. But don't go super overboard. Like all the people that rushed out and got bales of toilet paper, um, that really wasn't necessary. You didn't need four months of toilet paper. It also, it was really interesting, the toilet paper thing. You know, I think somebody should write a, a PhD thesis in psychology about this because it's a respiratory disease. And I, but it was funny how people were so panicked about toilet paper. Um, so that's an example of going overboard. People who got six months supply of pasta, um, that was going overboard. I would say, you know, if, if you're worried about a natural disaster or a lockdown, plan for maybe two weeks, maximum a month. But don't go, don't go beyond that. Yeah, that's um, that's good good advice um, because you know that that toilet paper thing was just. Odd. I mean, it was just very, um, very strange. Now, uh, now, one of the things I did, I just had made a side note um, earlier. You mentioned natural disasters, and another one of the funny ones in, in your story again with with Tina was talking about having like three C's: cash, communication, electronic communication, and clean underwear. And I just, you know, I, you know, that's one of those things that where you know, whenever it comes time for a natural disaster, I think I'm going to be thinking of Tina and what would Tina do. Um, but but um, so you know, like when when it comes to natural disasters, I mean, those are things you um, either can see coming or or, or not. But it's um, when when people are. Um, experiencing a natural disaster is there a other than like what you did with the possibility of, of going into the hospital I mean, are there any other um specific uh tips i mean you know because it, it seems that um when it comes to natural disasters it involves more more than one individual it involves a lot of people and, um, right. Yeah. No. No. So, yeah. It's an mm -hmm. yeah. It's an excellent question. Actually, this morning I was on the phone with two emergency manager experts, uh, their authorities. Um, first of all, if you live in an area that is prone to disasters, let's say California with wildfires or the South, you know, which gets really bad, really bad hurricanes. Um, most people probably have a drill already. They know where they're going to evacuate to. You know, they fill the, you know, the tank up with gas. They put shutters on the windows, et cetera. But the thing is, we have COVID right now, and a natural disaster within a pan pandemic throws away the, the playbook. So what I would recommend is everybody 
contact uh, their emergency managers. Usually the first go-to would be the fire department, and if they don't have an answer, they can put you through to who would have an answer and find out how the protocols are different this year. Just to give you an example, oftentimes when people evacuate, they go to hotels. Well, a lot of hotels are closed. A lot of hotels are very short-staffed at the moment. They're doing social distancing. So that may not be an option like before. Another thing, you have um, a lot of restrictions when you do interstate travel. For instance, in the state I live, New York, uh, people coming from out of town are supposed to uh, honor a 14-day quarantine and get tested. Mm -hmm. And I would really recommend that people adhere to that. So if you are thinking of evacuating, you're coming up with your evacuation plan, think about where you're evacuating to and how COVID and COVID um, challenges play into that. Um, Normally, people would go to schools or a stadium uh, for a public shelter. These days, Mm -hmm. um, you may not. You may not go to the place that you went before or that was designated before due to social distancing. And if you're in the planning department, think about, you know, if you're, you're, if you're one of the people who's actually an emergency manager, you know, do you need to string up sheets between uh, the places where mm-hmm. the people are going to stay in the school or in the stadium? You know, the sheet serving like a mask. Are you only going to allow right. people in with masks? How are you going to do testing? So, again, if you think about all this stuff beforehand, when it happens, you already have a plan. Yeah, yeah that's um, – everyone had better take a look at that because I'm in South Carolina, so, you know, with the hurricane season. Ah. You know, I've, I've, I've actually gone through a couple already that have been – quite disastrous but but we you know that was not in the days of covid which is you know re- like you said it kind of throws everything um redefines everything so um my goodness well um i want to take just a quick break judith and i do want to invite listeners if you would like to call in and ask any questions you can call in at 619-789-4359 and for those listening live in the chat room if you have any questions feel free to pose them there and, and then when we come back um judith there was a term um that was used in your book um a term used by psychologists called planful problem solving um I thought that was interesting because right now people are running into a whole whole bunch of problems. So maybe we could talk a little bit about what that's about, okay? Absolutely. Great. Everyone stay tuned. We'll be right back after this very brief break. Hello, this is Robert Sharp. I want to thank you for joining us and hope that you are enjoying today's show. Just a reminder that we have a wealth of information and resources available on our website, byteradio.me. There is a calendar of upcoming shows along with an archive link that will give you access to more than 1,400 shows we have had over the past nine years. Also on the site is a link to the products and services we provide, books, photography, a wellness store, and self-publishing assistance. Our show is a free podcast on iTunes, Blog Talk Radio, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. And you can subscribe for free on any of those platforms by using the links on our website homepage. We are on many social media platforms, Facebook, 
Twitter, LinkedIn, etc. And we also have buttons to those platforms at the top of our home page. Our website, byteradio.me, has much for you to explore and enjoy. I also very much appreciate you supporting our guests, and especially today's guest. And now, back to the show. Okay, everyone. Thank you for staying with us again today. My special guest is Judith Matloff, and we're talking about her new book, How to Drag a Body and Other Safety Tips You Hope to Never Need, Survival Tricks for Hacking Hurricanes and Hazards Life Might Throw at You. Uh, For more information, you can visit Judith's website, which is judithmatloff.com, and that's Judith, M-A-T-L-O-F-F dot com. And on her website, she has links about her books, articles, news, events, and even safety training. So with that, uh, we're back. Judith? Hi. Yeah. Hello again. Hello there. Okay. Hello. Great. Okay. So um, planful problem solving. So can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, what that's about and and how uh, the listeners might be able to apply it to problems in their life? Yeah, again, it, it, it echoes what I was saying earlier, which is think about what could give you grief. Think about what makes you anxious or think about what could be a danger to you. And then come up with a plan. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example from a very, very basic pro, uh, prosaic level. Every time a woman packs a diaper bag, she's doing hmm. planful problem solving. You know, you might pack Cheerios so the kid has something to snack on. You're going to pack a bottle so that you have milk to give or juice or water to give to the baby. You will have hopefully a couple toys and you'll have wipes and diapers. It's just the same principle as as that, but with a more challenging situation. So, for instance, to give you an example of something that we did, um, when the coronavirus hit, and New York became the epicenter, every member of my family was actually out of the city. My husband Mm -hmm. was on a business trip in Europe. I was at a writer's residency in upstate New York, and our son was in college in California. So we did not do the panic buying that we talked about before (laughs) for supplies because we were all out of town. But when we all came back to the city in mid-March, we actually felt pretty good because as a general rule, we always keep about a, about a month's supply of things like wipes and toilet paper and, and disinfectant and cleaning supplies and non-perishable food. So we already had all of that. And just as a matter of course, because, again, because my husband and I have been in so many crisis zones, we had plenty of latex and nitrile gloves. We even had N95 masks because they're very, very useful in a variety of situations. And so we, we basically had everything that you needed in the house already. So, you know, of course we were anxious about being in the, the global epicenter of a pandemic, but in terms of supplies, we were all set. The other thing we had, and this is really, really, really important if you live in an area of natural disasters. We had what's called an NOAA hand-cranked radio, 
That's a radio mm-hmm. um, that receives emergency um, alerts. So, and the thing is, because it's hand cranked, it doesn't rely on batteries and it doesn't rely on a traditional electoral, electric power source. And it's, it's very, very small. You can order them online or in a Home Depot. They're very, very small and light. And they're a godsend if you live in an area where there could be a hurricane or there could be a earthquake or there could be a tornado. All the alerts and notifications from the authorities come through on the radio. So we just happened to have one of those in the basement anyway. We had flashlights. <laughs> uh, we had a month's supply of cash. I mean, we just do this as a matter of form. We always have a go-to bag packed. And it's, it's really helpful because then you don't have to worry about throwing together a medical kit because it's already sitting there in your go-to bag. Well, that's wonderful. That, that's, that is excellent preparation. And, um, yeah, so and, – and I had learned my lesson about the, the crank radio when, when going through a hurricane, you know, and, and lost power at the yeah. house, and it was just, it was just uh, it was a nightmare. <laughs> and, um, but anyway, that's – you know, it, it would obviously have been better to have been better prepared for that, but if anything, you know, experience is a, is a great teacher. Um, yeah, and, so, you know, one more yeah. thing about these radios, a lot of them have USB mm-hmm. ports. Um, so you can power up other devices, and they most of them have a flashlight already contained within. So they're, you know, they're, they're just a perfect thing for emergencies. And the other thing I would recommend is everybody get a very lightweight um, forehead flashlight because it leaves your hands free to do whatever your hands need to do. Um, you know, if you've got to put up shutters on your windows or you need to dig, dig out the car or whatever, you don't. The flashlights on your forehead, and they're very. You can get one that's like 1.5 ounces. I mean, they're very lightweight. So, I think everybody should have those in the house. You just never yeah. know. No, that's true. And, and and again, with illustrations, that 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 section and and some basics was funny. Um, <laughs> you have the flip flops, Kindle, toilet paper, first aid kit, pet dog, and headlamp. <laughs> Black tunic and generator. Yep. So anyway, I just I had that noted that it was just one of the, again one of those that kind of made me laugh. But um, with head, I actually laughed at headlamp versus recognizing the value of headlamp. Yeah, I mean they're really really important. You know the other thing, like you mentioned, the humor of the book that was really important to me because it's a very serious topic, which is planning for things that frighten you and planning for things that are dangerous. So I wanted to keep that light, and I wanted to, you know, I think humor is one of the best um, mechanisms for dealing with stress. Uh, I know certainly since the pandemic began, I'm just watching comedies on my on my laptop. That's all I'm doing, and I'm reading mm-hmm. funny books. And, and I wanted to keep it light because preparation doesn't have to be a panic-inducing um, exercise. It, it's supposed to have the opposite effect. So I wanted the book to be very conversational. I wanted funny stories. I wanted funny drawings because it's a lot, you know, the world we live in is alarming enough. So let's at least, if we're going to talk about how you're going to prepare, let's keep it light. Yeah. The lighter side of disaster. (laughs) But but I know, and and I enjoyed that, you know, that was one of the things I think um, that really kept, me wanting to read, you know, one one section after another, it was the humor. Because if if that humor wasn't there, it would have. I mean, 
it would have been dry, but also would have been um, I would have ended up being more anxious, you know, by the time I finished yeah. the book rather than um, and and you know I think you know the side effect out of that too is is that if one finds himself in a situation that is um, creates a lot of a lot of anxiety, is that um, maybe to take a take a step back and try and find some humor in it. Oh, definitely. I mean, a sense of absurd has powered me through some of the most disgusting situations. <laughs> I mean, and you know, what's traditionally called gallows humor. Um, I mean, uh-huh. like even in the concentration camps during World War II, the prisoner, a lot of prisoners maintain humor because it, it's such a, um, it's such a bomb to the soul. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's it's a phenomenal um, defense mechanism when you're in a very disturbing situation to try to, it's a way of gaining control of the situation. You're poking fun at it, so therefore you're not letting it get to you. Yeah, exactly. Um, there's another section that I kind of want to talk. It's, obviously, it's it's more prevalent in today's world than um, at other times in our history, and that's regarding um, the chapter on uh, protest bombs and shooters. Um, yeah. Run is, <laughs> is, uh, is the title. But, um, you know, in, in that particular section, you you have a story of a French uh, friend, of course, or, co- or uh, you know, um, compadre, you know, and, and his experience of, of the, the riots in France, you know, and and now we're seeing a lot of protesting going on here. Now, as I was going through and reading in that section, you have like um, a list, a, a checklist kind of, of people to ask themselves about, you know, what, you know, if this should happen, then by the time I finished it, I thought, hmm, would I really want to do this? So can you talk a little <laughs> bit about, <laughs> you know, I mean, no, and, and I, you know, I haven't, I'm not, I'm not really a go out in the street kind of guy, but um, I do vocalize a lot of, of protests. Um, but for, so can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, what's going on with, with protests and, you know, in keeping in mind maybe the balance between um, all of the preparation or all of the possibilities that you, you point about in the book and the actual um, act of being able to put forth your effort on an idea? Protest. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, it's so relevant today. And it was really funny because when I was writing the book and I was working with the editor, um, the, the initial editor on the project said, hmm, riots. I don't know, like, how often do we really get caught up in riots? And I said, oh, just leave it in. You, know, you never know. And it's like, wow, look what well, happened. Look mm-hmm. what happened in 2020. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, the rule of thumb is always stay on the edge and just think of an exit route, um, particularly now with the coronavirus, because you have to worry about social distancing. And, uh if you if you stay at the back of the protest or better on the side, you can just pull away and you can keep your distance from people. And, um, you know, the other thing is, for instance, I live in New York City, and there were some pretty, um, shall we say, fraught confrontations between uh, the law enforcement and the protesters. The law enforcement uh, were pretty, pretty... Um, pretty strong-handed, shall we say. So, you know, mm-hmm. my advice to people, and, and my advice to people really anywhere across the country where this has occurred as well, like Minnesota and, you know, where, you know um, is the most common form of 
crowd control is usually tear gas. So what you, if you're going to a demonstration, do research ahead of time and find out how law enforcement behaves, what tactics they adopt to try to control a crowd. And then, you know, if they use sound cannons, you want ear protectors, pretty much everybody uses batons. They, they hit people or they use tear gas. So um, with that in mind, you should probably wear like a bike helmet so that, you know, in case you get clobbered on the head. The other piece of advice for the tear gas would be get eye protectors, goggles, don't wear contact lenses, and bring water that you can flush your eyes out with. And try to cover as much of your your skin with, let's say, long-sleeved pants and long-sleeved shirts so that um, you'll be less likely to come into contact with the direct contact with the chemical. Um, And the other thing I would recommend to everybody is always go with a buddy. Don't go with too big a crowd in your circle. Like don't Mm -hmm. go with five friends because if things change very quickly, it's very hard to make a decision. Go with one or two other people. And that way, if one of you gets into trouble or faces a, you know, a really bad situation, the others can call for help. Wow. Yeah, those are um, excellent, excellent points. And, and again, I, I don't know how much um, that would um, drive me to, to want to experience that, but um, it is important to, to be safe. And, and, and I appreciate people, you know, going out and expressing themselves, you know, their, their opinions freely. So, um, and again, though, like you say, in the time of COVID, it's just uh, um, an additional layer of, of consideration. Yeah, and I would recommend, you know, carrying extra masks because if there is tear gas, your mask will get contaminated. And you also might want to hand them out to other people around you. So if they're shouting and, you know, they're talking very loudly and they're coughing or whatever, then their mouths are at least covered. But, you know, the thing to keep in mind with the protest is things can shift really quickly. So you can be the most peaceful person in the world and you can be surrounded by a very peaceful person. But if one or two people get very confrontational and start provoking law enforcement or law enforcement uh, for whatever reason is very adrenalized and they're just getting pissed off, things can, things can, you know, can change within seconds. So again, it's Mm -hmm. another case of just being prepared, planful planning, just in case. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Now, um, we're not going to go into some of the other topics, but I just want to let the listeners know some of the other ones that you have in in your book, um, Give Me Sheltering, Hunkering Down During Disasters, When Disaster Strikes. Um, Like you mentioned earlier, the the Me Too and, and rape. Um, online harassment and stalking, and that's a hack, electronic security. But the last chapter I kind of want to explore a little bit, and that's um, the chapter is called Mental Armor, um, Emotional Resilience. Um, can you talk um, a little bit about what emotional res- resilience is, and um, is this something that we want to build, and, and how would we go about doing that? Yeah, it's an excellent question, and it's, it's, I think it's on everybody's minds now. We're living through a very, very stressed time, and I personally don't know anybody who has not been emotionally shook up by the, um, by the pandemic and what it means. You know, people are losing their jobs. They're losing family members. Uh, now, you know, people are very, parents are very anxious. What will school look like? 
Um, for those of us who have been on lockdown, that's obviously created challenges in itself. And the, you know, the best way, I think, to deal with this kind of anxiety and emotional distress is, first of all, to acknowledge that it's very, very normal to feel shook up in, a, in an abnormal situation. So normalize mm-hmm. to yourself your emotions. And I think a lot of people have trouble accepting that they, they're having trouble being productive and they're, they're anxious a lot and they're depressed, but that's perfectly fine. And you have to be good to yourself and cut yourself a lot of slack. The other thing I would say is that try not to project too much into the future because we really don't know what it's going to be like. For instance, you know, we're waiting right now in my household to find out whether my kid's college is going to reopen. So we're basically mm-hmm. trying not to think about it until we get the answer on Friday. Because if we think about it, we start coming up with all sorts of weird scenarios and we start getting anxious. So we kind of have a pact in the house. Let's not talk about it. Let's not think about it. Well, we can talk about it, but let's not project. We're going to wait till the decision comes on Friday and then we're going to make a plan. And, you know, I think for a lot of people, just getting through the day is enough. So if you're really, really worried about the future, just try to come up with some kind of a routine and a plan day by day. It's a lot easier to think, okay, it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon right now. I've got to make dinner at 6. Then I'm going to watch a really nice video at the end of the day because you want to treat yourself at the end of the day. Or maybe I'm going to finish work at 6, make dinner for my family, go for a run, whatever. But just try to compartmentalize everything and live more in the moment, and it makes it more manageable. The other two things which are absolutely critical for emotional resilience is social support and social contact. And I think, you know, certainly the the social isolation of the lockdowns has been very, very tough for people. And I think, you know, the human spirit is very indomitable and quite, you know, we have good instincts. So I think all the Zoom cocktails, and, um, you know, group chats that people developing at the end of the day are a perfect example of emotional resilience. People are reaching out in the only or best way that they can. And surround yourself with people who make you feel good. You know, check in with them regularly. Um, it really, it's that social contact that will get you through the most. And finally, take care of yourself physically. It's really important to get exercise. It's absolutely critical to eat well and most importantly, get enough sleep. Because if you're physically in good shape, you're, it's going, you're going to have more emotional resilience. So, um, you know, these are things. And, you know, this, this situation isn't going away soon. Um, even if they find a vaccine, it's, there's going to be right. a lot of readjustments. So we're in this for the long haul. And, you know, just try to get through the day or get through the week. Yeah, um, I, I agree. And in, in the you know the idea of um, living in the moment. You know, when we plan, you know, obviously you know, a lot of us have been kind of conditioned. I mean, to plan, you know, at least a few days, or a week, or a couple of months. I mean, we you know it's been our um, process for um, kind of mapping out what's going to happen for, for our life. And um, now with not being able to do that, it seems that um, 
we're having to deal with um, like a control issue in a way, you know, that, that thing yes. that what happens. So, and, and I know personally a lot of folks who have control challenges, <laughs> you know, that they are, you know, and, and so this is really throwing them into a tizzy. Um, and yes. so recognizing that, so how, for someone who, Maybe listening, who maybe recognizes that uh, you know control is a, is something um, for them, an issue for them. Um, what are you know some ways to? I mean, is it maybe just focus that living in the moment? Um, what what are some yeah. ways for people to kind of recognize with that control issue? Yeah, well, I'll just put it out there. I have. Um, it's very important for me to to have control. Um, but it's also important. I'm, I'm one of those people. I'm pretty type A, you know? but, uh, okay. but I also, it, yeah, so I'm just putting out there. I'm with you guys, <laughs> but, um, what I have found in this situation and many crisis situations is to accept that I don't have control, which can be very hard. And then I try to control what I can, what I can control mm. at the moment is what time I go to bed, what I eat. Uh, making sure we have enough supplies in the house and getting exercise. That I can control. I can also control my mood to a certain extent by um, watching funny videos at the end of the day. I round the day off with something really pleasant that makes me laugh. So that's one thing I have control over. Um, I have control over, there's an elderly woman who's a neighbor I've been um, helping out throughout this. Um, She couldn't go out for a long time because she's immune compromised. So one thing that I could control was trying to help somebody else. And boy, Mm. that really, really was such a wonderful feeling. I felt, you know, I could make a difference in one person's life. And I think doing something for somebody else, even if it's just doing grocery shopping for them, is one way that you can control your environment. And the other way that um, Miss Control Freak here controls things (laughs) is with the preparation. So again, you know, I was anxious about, you know, going into hospital and everything. So I had a plan. The plan made me feel more in control. Um, You know, if there is a big storm in New York, like Hurricane Sandy again, we're all prepared in the house. And just the act of getting ready for all that made me feel more in control because I had to do an activity. I had to check, like our radio was really out of date. It was so old and worn out. We actually had like a piece of wire surfing as the antenna. So part of my feeling of control was, I'm going to take action. I'm going to get a new, new radio. And then like the headlamp I was talking about, it was like we had like this really old model that was like really heavy. So good, I'm going to take control. I'm going to get a new one. And just going through these motions made me feel better. Um, so just set tasks for yourselves. Um, Doing, is there any paperwork that's driving you crazy? Don't put it off. Just do it now. As long as you're taking action on something, it will give you a sense of control. That's great. Yeah, I can see that. And, and I, I truly didn't know that that was, you know, that you were type A. <laughs> like I said, I know quite a few. And, and, and it is just a real challenging time for that. Now, um, I've... Luckily, that's not necessarily something that I, I mean, I do like control, but, but um, I'm, you know, I'm not, uh, control isn't a real big thing for me. Uh, I'm happy to, to recognize there are things beyond me, you know, that, uh, that I just can't control and, and try as I may, I try to just uh, 
not um, give that power of things I can't control. Yeah, I mean, we do have to unfortunately accept that we're in this insane situation right now. We can't control that. But what we can do is change, or not change, but we can control how we deal with it. And that's massively empowering. It really is, you know. And if you're worried about a second wave and another lockdown, make sure you have all the supply, like, like stuck on your toilet paper or whatever now, you know. Um, but just, you know, if, whatever it is that's making you anxious, try to come up with a plan to mitigate or deal with it, and that in itself will give you a better sense of control. Yeah, excellent. Well, Judith, I really enjoyed our conversation today. Um, I'm sure the listeners got a lot out of it, and I did, and, and I really appreciate you taking your time and sharing with us. Um, it's great. It was an absolute pleasure, and um, everybody uh, stay safe and be prepared. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, in, in, in your, your comments about uh, living in the moment, um, right, the, the emotional, the social support and contact and, and going out and helping others and, and then taking care of yourself physically, those are some very important things that we can leave with today that, uh, that would uh, be good focus during this time. Well, I wish everybody luck. I mean, it's a hard time, but be nice to yourselves because um, you're doing the best you can. And in these circumstances, that's important. Yep, absolutely. Well, thank you again for your time, Judith. Now, um, I noticed you are on Facebook, and so I sent you a friend request there. And so hopefully we can um, keep in touch, and and, uh, I'd love to uh, find out what, what happens next on your journey. I would, I would love that. Um, take care. Take care. This has been a real Thank pleasure you. talking Thank to you. you. Thank you, everyone. Again, everyone, today my very special guest has been Judith Matloff. We've been talking about her book, How to Drag a Body and Other Safety Tips You Hope to Never Need, Survival Tricks for Hacking Hurricanes and Hazards Life May Throw at You. Again, you can find out more by visiting her website, which is judithmatloff.com, and that's Judith, M-A-T-L-O-F-F dot com. So everyone, I want to thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show, and until we meet again, thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Remember, our show is available as a free podcast from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. To follow our show, visit our homepage at ByteRadio.me and select the platform you use most. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ByteRadioMe. Until we meet again, remember to be a bright light by bringing inspiration to your world and to the lives of those you touch.